0: hello and welcome to a deprogrammed episode with Carrie Smith. I'm very excited about my guest today. This is a woman who I met very recently. Um, we did a panel together here in Austin last week. It was called Women Leaving the Left. And uh, I was not familiar with Mary Lou Singleton. That's who we're talking to today, but I should have been. Uh, this woman is a badass. Uh, She is a mother, a midwife, a nurse practitioner, and a medical freedom activist. Her clinic, Enchanted Family Medicine, provides primary health care services to over 2,000 patients in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, She served on the board of directors for Midwives Alliance of North America, the National Association of Certified Professional Midwives, and Stop Patriarchy Abortion Rights Freedom Ride, and the Women's Liberation Front. Uh, There's a whole bunch more, but I think we're going to get to some of it in our conversation. So welcome, Mary Lou. Hi, Carrie. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So um, first things first, I had such a great time speaking with you, and uh, I, I hope that we get to do more of these. And for anybody who hasn't seen it yet, I'm not sure if the video is up yet, you are just a wealth of information about uh, women's bodies, women's rights. And, uh, I, I was ashamed that I hadn't heard of you before this because you've had your own kind of, uh, cancellation from the left in a way, would you say? Cause I, I talked to a lot of people on the show who've either walked away from the left or had some type of cancellation. You had something big happen to you.
1: I did. I did. I, um, I started noticing, uh, gender ideology coming into midwifery in like 2013, 2014, I feel like this ideology came into the fringes of medicine before it got to mainstream medicine. And they, they really, right. So they, they hit the, um, the natural medicine community and then midwifery got hit hard and it was just as midwifery was really taking off professionalizing. Um, and suddenly there was a lot of, um, Grant writing and funding coming in, and the and the funding came with strings that we had to take on this this uh, language and ideology. And I started really noticing that um, probably around like 2013 2014. And then in 2014, the Midwives Alliance of North America rewrote their core competencies for midwives and erased the words "woman" and "mother" from the core competency
0: documents. Can we can we just stop there? <laughs> I know this is old hat to you, but for anyone who's just watching this, if I I imagine you're as shocked as I am. This is a a midwives association. It's all about women and childbirth, and they were taking out the word woman
1: and, and mother. mother.
0: <laughs> yes,
1: um, yeah, I was shocked too. I remain shocked. I don't know when I'm I'm going to stop being shocked by this madness. <laughs> But I think that's good to not get used to it, to keep realizing Mm -hmm. this is crazy. This is crazy what's happening. So um, a friend of mine, Michelle Pacino, and I co-wrote an open letter, to the Midwives Alliance of North America, um, expressing our our concerns. You can find our letter at Women Centered, -centered, and we can put it in the show notes, but Women Centered Midwifery is our, our website that's still up. And we put this out to a lot of the old school midwives, a lot of the old birth activists that we knew through the years and asked them if they agreed with us that this was dangerous, what was happening, that this was this was concerning, that women were being erased from midwifery, (laughs) that women were being erased from birth. Um, We got over a thousand signers to our open letter. Including some heavy hitters, you know, anyone in the natural birth community is familiar with them. with Ina May Gaskin, uh, with uh, Gucci Cook, she's a Mohawk elder, that we got a lot of, of old school birth activists to sign on to her letter and agree with us. And we presented this to the leadership of the Midwives Alliance of North America. And they refused to speak to us. They refused to address our concerns. And instead, they worked with gender activists to draft what they said was their response to our letter, which um, was a response called "Birth for Everybody," and uh, every right, <laughs> exactly.
0: Okay, I'm just taking yeah. notes on this craziness. <laughs> okay.
1: And as we're used to when we're trying to debate gender, they didn't answer any of our specific concerns. You know, we said we're concerned about the effect of cross-sex hormones on, on women's bodies and whether or not it's, it's actually safe to give a woman testosterone and then have that woman later get pregnant. You know, we don't have any data on this and we're concerned about this. Um, They didn't address that. They didn't address our issues around promoting body dysphoria. They didn't address our issues around really anything. They, they just parroted their talking points of, um, being inclusive and, uh, um, however people feel is how they are. Nothing, you know, they, they basically saying biology is bigotry, right? The same things that we're used to hearing. Mm -hmm. And, um, they invited people to sign their statement and it became this like signature war,
0: Uh, so that did they, did they name you guys in their response? I believe
1: they did. It was really mm-hmm. fascinating. Um, so in 2015, when this is all happening, our letter is up, they're refusing to respond to us. The MANA conference, Midwives Alliance of North America, is, the acronym is MANA. They had their conference in Albuquerque, New Mexico, my my hometown, my, where I live and where Michelle lives a couple hours away. So Michelle and I were wanting to address the board of directors at, at the national conference. Michelle and I were both previous board members. We've both sat on the board of directors of MANA. Many of our signers on the letter had, had been previous board members of MANA. We're long-term midwifery activists. And the current leadership, again, refused to meet with us. And instead, for the conference, they said, we weren't allowed to have a table. We were not allowed to have a uh, dialogue there. We would be removed from the space if we promoted um, a- any conversation on the topic. That- wow. That would be um, non-inclusive. It would create an unsafe space if we if we wanted to have conversation about this.
0: Okay. And just so I'm clear, when they wanted to replace these words, that the whole thing that that initiate or one of the things, the trigger that that prompted your letter, uh, they wanted to replace "woman" and they wanted to replace the word "mother" for midwives to to use different words. And what words did they want you guys to use? Birthing parents
1: gestational parents those pregnant (laughs)
0: pregnant parents okay Mm -hmm. and then what about when the baby's born was there also sort of a don't assign a gender or
1: um no that didn't that hadn't didn't come into the core competencies there wasn't there's not any talk about the the sex of the infants um they and I don't believe that they use the phrase sex assigned at birth. Um, though we did put in our letter that sex is not assigned at birth by midwives, it, it's observed. And you know, we we don't assign an, an infant 10 fingers. We we observe that all the fingers are present, right? All all the right. things you think of of what we think of with the newborn exam, we we don't assign an intact palate to the baby, we always check to make sure the baby doesn't have a cleft palate. Like the same thing. We, we, we observe these things. We observe the infant sex, um, mm-hmm. but you know, the, the gaslighting and the, the craziness yes. that happens when, when you try to have these conversations with the gender activists, they always bring up disorders of sexual development and that a very small percentage of people are born with ambiguous genitalia or, um, genitalia that looks like one sex, but their chromosomes are are of the other sex. to which I usually respond like those, but a, those are disorders. they they're not normal and and that's a very tragic thing because people with disorders of sexual development have problems. you know they they really they have a, a physical problem. And they're almost always infertile. That they, they, means they can't reproduce normally. It's not something to celebrate and it's not something to normalize. It, it does exist, but it doesn't negate the fact that we are a sexually dimorphic species. And also everyone, even with this uh, disorder of sexual development, has a biological sex. There's no there's no such thing as intersex. That that's that's uh, a cultural term, but, but there's, there's no such thing as a true hermaphroditic human that has both that makes both sperm and eggs. Everyone has,
0: everyone has a sex. And so there's people no, might- so there's no such thing. So somebody might have, uh, observably, uh, one kind of gen- genitalia, but have the opposite chromosomes. And so what you're saying is there's no, there's no human that produces both gametes, right? Exactly. Like both egg and sperm. Okay. Exactly.
1: That that's there, that has never happened and nor should it ever happen. It would mean, a a, a very, um, disadvantageous, disadvantageous mutation of, of us. It wouldn't be something that would be good for our species. If we, disorders of sexual development are not something that's useful to our species. It's, it's a, it's a sad thing when that happens, it's a birth defect. Mm -hmm. But now we're not allowed to use terms like that, right? We can't, I'm hearing in my mind, the people judging that I just said birth defect and how dare I imply there's something something, uh, not normal about being born with, you know, missing genitalia or being born with being born, uh, being born missing an eye. Like these these are things that we used to lump under calling them birth defects. And now we're being trained to, to make everything seem normal, right? Yeah. It's, it's such a bigger issue than gender. Even
0: they seem to get away with this in some ways by conflating the idea that you shouldn't, you should not, obviously you should not treat people, as less than for having an abnormality or for being an outlier or for having a defect or, you know, for being short or for being tall or, or for whatever, you should not treat people differently. They take that. And then, and then like a Trojan horse, they try and they hide inside of it. And now let's all pretend that there's no such thing as abnormalities or defects or, um, and and those two things are separate, but I think, I think they get away with um, convincing people. You can't say you can't acknowledge facts. You can't acknowledge reality because that would be somehow bullying people. It's not, Mm -hmm. it's not at all. So I want to ask you about so you guys published a letter they had their response letter and then what was the fallout or, or what were the consequences of of this in the community and the, the I didn't know it was called mid midwifery i love that <laughs> that was midwifery midwifery in the midwifery world what were the consequences of this happening
1: well create a lot of divisiveness as this topic often does you know and just people dig in and don't want to, don't want to discuss anything. So it was very disruptive to the midwifery community. Um, at the same time, a lot of the critical race theory was coming in too. So they're just dividing us on every fault line and fracture line they can find. Right. So, um, at the same time, all this gender madness is coming in. Um, the, the same people bringing this are bringing a lot of, of critical race theory of, um, Oh, The entire history of midwifery is white supremacist and all the midwives who have ever been acknowledged for their contributions to midwifery are racist and, and white midwives need to uh, spend 100% of their time working on correcting their internalized racism, um, acknowledging that they're racist. The same thing like the Robin DiAngelo witch hunting mm-hmm. rules of if you deny you're a racist, it's more proof that you're a racist. The yes. only way you can, the only way you can say you're not a racist is to say you're a racist. It's,
0: it's like the Salem witch trials, isn't it? Right, you must right. confess that you're a witch, and if you don't say you're a witch, that's evidence you're a witch. Exactly. It's it is the same. It's the same rules.
1: It's tried and true, right? It just gets recycled every couple of generations. So that divisiveness was coming in as well, and um, just. I viewed it as these, these funding streams. Like, I think this is all organized by, you know, and that this is debatable and I'm happy to debate it. But from my perspective, this is all organized by the ruling class and it's more divide and conquer tactics. Right. And, and this came in with funding streams. This, this came in with grants, this came in with the money. And they got us all fighting each other. And, uh, And it created a lot of division. And I know um, women of color and and young women of color in particular were um, encouraged to be very angry. And and everyone has a lot to be angry about. I think anger is a sacred emotion. I don't wanna sound like it's bad to be angry, but I think that um, this was being stirred up in a way that was not useful to the movement of midwifery. So all of that's happening too. So you've got all this divisiveness. There's no sense of unity. Everyone's walking on eggshells all the time. That energy that comes with wokeism, right? Where you just, Mm -hmm. it's like a freaking minefield where you're, you're, you're afraid your people are going to turn on you every second. You, you can't be good enough. The rules are always changing. So in terms of the gender and how the fallout happened, um, it was very stressful um, I had an article published in the Huffington Post about me, a, a trans activist named Trevor McDonald, who is a, a woman who says she is a man who took cross-sex hormones and cut her breasts off. And then now she says she's a man who gave birth and she wants recognition as a birthing father, and she gets lots of money. She she has a book out called Where's the Father. She she successfully sued the La Leche League to allow fathers into breastfeeding space. Um
0: wow. Yeah,
1: right. Very very weaponized person. Um, she wrote an article in the Huffington Post about me that said, uh, lead midwife's uh lead midwife's actions show trans hatred and about how I was the editor, I mean that the author, primary author of this letter, and how she had captured a Facebook comment I made and and put it in her article about what a terrible person I am. So I was dealing with a lot of press that I I didn't want and, uh, a lot of hatred coming at me. I had, um, people threatening to go to the nursing board to take my license away because of, of transphobia. Um, I was dealing with a lot of threats coming at me. Mm-hmm. And then I was dealing with the loss of friendships of people taking sides and people who decided they were siding with trans activism, viewing me as a, um, you know, a pariah, like it was toxic to be associated with me. It was, uh it was not okay to continue to in any way support me. I had to be denounced in order
0: for them to stay in yes. the yes Mary Lee, yeah. this is so, this, hap- this unfolds the same everywhere. I've done a lot of interviews with people in the knitting world who've it's crazy, but there've been all these social justice wars in the knitting world and yarn makers pattern makers um yarn dyers who've similar things different world um denouncements losing friends people who they thought were friends feeling pressure to make public statements against them being banned from knitting festivals and and it sounds at this point it's like every time i hear one of these stories i i think you're right it's good um to continue to let it affect us and not get used to it. But it is damn if it's not predictable, Mm -hmm. you know, this kind of mobbing and piling on and shaming. And, and so how has it affected your, um, business? It sounds like you've come through the other side of this and you're intact. Like you're fine.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm independent. I, you know, Mm -hmm. I have, um, I've always been a very independent person and and I'm in private practice. So I'm, I'm my own boss. Um, Nothing came from the, thankfully, nothing came from the um, threats to go after my license with, with this particular issue. Um, So I, you know, I'm, I'm practicing. I lost some patients over it and that's fine. If they're more comfortable at another provider, I'm absolutely fine with that. But honestly, I had so many people calling my office saying, I know you're going to lose patience, and I know that your practice has been closed. If there are openings in your pa- in your practice, can my family and I please come? Be patients. Yeah. And I, you know, I became busier about it. I, I think for so many of us, when you hold firm, you don't apologize, you stand in your truth. It's a wonderful thing. Like you, you meet all these amazing people. You find you have all this support. You, you get to be part of community where you're not walking on eggshells, where there is true yes. diversity of thoughts. Right. It's, it's, it's been strengthening that way. You know, it was stressful. I don't want to say it wasn't stressful. Um, I remember when Michelle and I were driving to the conference, it's in our home state. We've both been on the monoboard. These, like, these are our sisters. This is our pack. This is our, this is us. Like we're midwives and we're driving to the conference and I I had to pull the car over because we were both so sick and we actually, we both vomited. We threw up because we were so sick physically to yeah. so go into that space. And that was awful. I, I had chest pain the whole conference. I had um, panic and like the, the amount of stress in my body was, was extreme. Mm-hmm. I'm no longer in that place. I feel stronger, but I had to move through those feelings and, and the intensity of, the deep primal fear of losing your tribe.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I I uh this resonates a lot with me. So how how has it impacted the way you uh view yourself politically or cuz you know we were mm-hmm. on this panel together women leaving the left and and all four of us overlap in some ways and have other differences. Uh, you you have have were you always on the left in terms of politics?
1: i was raised in a very right-wing family a right-wing activist oh, okay. family but from the time i was a young adolescent i i viewed myself as a liberal and a leftist um i'm a very intellectual person i love to to read i love as much information as i can find i've, I've always been uh you know an information seeker so as a, as a child i it, like as an adolescent i i started reading a lot about leftism and probably around by age 14, 15, considered myself solidly on the left side of the political spectrum. And part of that was rebellion. And a lot of it was, it made more sense to me. Um, And then I would say since 2014, 2015, I I don't know who I am politically. Yeah.
0: yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the club where you're, there is no club. (laughs)
1: Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. And and it hit me. I think you know when you swing from one to the other. I was reacting to extreme right wing politics in my home. And and extreme. You know, I grew. Up, I was born in 1969. I you know it was 10 when Reagan was elected. I I grew up in a very conservative area. And I that that hardcore right energy. There are issues there as well. I always mm-hmm. tell people like I don't want to live under Mao or Mussolini. Right, yeah. I don't yeah. like right wing or left wing totalitarianism. So, or as right. um, Constantine Kisen says, he has one of my favorite quotes, where he says, "I am opposed to authoritarianism, especially the kind that you like."
0: <laughs> oh, I haven't heard that one before, but I love him. Oh, that's right. great. Right. Yeah, whatever kind you're into, right. I
1: especially don't like that one.
0: <laughs> right. Oh man, so. Uh, where where do you see things headed? Well, let's talk specifically about midwifery for a second and um, women's healthcare. I often ask people where they see things headed on in the big scale. You know, like are are they optimistic or not about what's going on in culture and and in the world? But but I also like to ask specifically. So in that community, where are things going? No,
1: I've really disengaged from national midwifery politics. I I couldn't yeah. I couldn't keep paying attention to it. Um I what I see happening in the grassroots is this push to take back birth in a non-professional way to kind of get back to the roots of what was happening at the birth of the modern home birth movement, right? That, that um birth was very much medicalized after World War II. Um by 1960 99% of births in the United States were happening in the hospital in the 60s women started rebelling against that and it was all done in a very true grassroots deprofessionalized way and i'm seeing a resurgence of that i'm seeing the free birth movement really taking off deprofessionalized midwives local community midwives who are not interested in licensure not interested in state regulation and control and that's a backlash to to what's been happening in the professions. But I, I find it kind of exciting. I think it's exciting. Um, yeah.
0: Can I you think- tell us more about that? Um, just to pause that for a second, because sure. you and I did, before we did our panel last week in Austin, uh, we did a panel about abortion and just mm-hmm. to see where, what are all, all of our thoughts were on it. And in that call, you had so much information I I had no idea about. So you say that birth was medicalized after World War II. Can you tell us about that, like the ways in which the way in which we think about some things, it, it, it's always been like this. It may not have always been like that. Right. So, what's the history of uh, birth and, and and how it relates to the government?
1: Well, you know, the funny thing about history is you can always go back a little further and go back a little further, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, if we're um <laughs> if we're talking um. The history of of uh, um north american midwifery since since colonization we could start there that's that's going back pretty far right so but mm-hmm. that's certainly not the beginning of the history of midwifery and, and regulation with the state whenever um europeans got to this continent obviously um all of the many nations of native americans who were here had intact m- midwifery traditions that there was no industrial medicine women were in charge of birth birth is women's domain and and as is the case for most of human history midwives were women in the community who had an affinity for helping other women in birth and that that's what was going on in this continent when the colonists got here there was no industrial medicine and generally only the ruling class like the very very wealthy had physicians and most mm-hmm. of the healing was done by by women. Like women were the, the herbalists, the healers, the, the boo-boo fixers, right? The, the, the fever tenders, the, the the death tenders, you know, and, and the birth tenders. Um, so at the beginning of what's now the United States, women were a, a, in charge of birth. You know, it was women's domain whenever industrialization happened so in the mid 1800s like 1830 to 1850 the AMA was founded the physicians started wanting uh, consolidated control over medicine and they wanted it done in a way that was was their way that was men men trained in med schools then they had this campaign that went state from to state, trying to get rid of herbalists, um, eclectic physicians. Eclectic physicians were these really cool physicians that um, were herbalists and alchemists and astrologers and bone setters, and they were very a very cool group of physicians. Um, mm-hmm. But they didn't fit the AMA model, so the AMA was trying to criminalize all these groups. The hardest mm-hmm. one to get rid of was the midwives, because. Women trusted midwives more than they trusted men to attend birth, which was obvious, right? Like, what do men mm-hmm. know about birth? Nothing. Like, they, mm-hmm. you know, men don't know anything on a visceral level
0: about giving birth. How could they? Like, this is just human sexual dimorphism. Um, okay. I'm just going to point this out. Yeah, I'm sorry to pause you. That's one of those things that when you say it and I think about it, I'm like, wait a minute, that's true. But I would never have, it, It's you just don't think about it. You know, like we have all these assumed truths, just like birth has always been done this way. It's always been done in a hospital. Of course, doctors, male doctors know all about birth. And when you say a man doesn't know viscerally about birth, I'm like, is that true? I'm like, wait, well, it is true. (laughs) Right, right. Okay. So I'm sorry. And now
1: there's even further gaslighting. Like we already were gaslit about that, that this was, you know, that male doctors know about birth. And now we're being gaslit and being told men can give birth. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so they're going after the midwives. And this is before antibiotics, before blood transfusions, before knowledge of the germ theory, where people knew to wash their hands in between going from working on cadavers who might have died of smallpox to attending a birth. You know, they everyone knew birth was safer in the home with midwives than in, in the hands of men who didn't you know they they had more dangerous outcomes because they didn't know what they were doing and their techniques were more dangerous so in order to criminalize midwifery the ama went after abortion and they went state to state to criminalize abortion because the midwives were the primary providers of abortion services and before birth control abortion or what was called menstrual regulation services that was birth control mm-hmm. Like that—that that was what women used if they had pregnancies that they—they they didn't want. There, there weren't, you know, there were was no industrial birth control. There were no contraceptive pills. There were no artificial hormones. There really weren't even accessible condoms, diaphragms, those kind of things. Like some people soak sponges and things. There were some like um, early birth control methods, and some women really understood fertility awareness, but that information was, was kept from women more so even because they passed these laws called the comstock laws that made it illegal for women to talk to each other about birth control what right the comstock laws is, are okay. really really interesting um and they made it illegal to disseminate information about birth control abortion sexuality so the midwives were really targeted by these laws And even though abortion, early abortion, menstrual regulation services were incredibly common and safe, um, they were also very private and not something women wanted to talk about publicly. So if you go after the midwives saying, oh, they're not safe birth attendants in the mid 1800s, that's not going to go over well. Like Everybody knows they're safer birth attendants than the physicians. But if you go after abortion, women aren't going to get out in the streets and say, you know, I've had three abortions with her. She's great. Like, Mm -hmm. no one would defend the midwives on abortion because of um, stigma, because of, you know, women's status in society, because of the, you know, just like things were very different in terms of, of um, there was a whole different set of social shunning rules, right. going mm-hmm. on and and a woman couldn't admit that she'd had sex before marriage or that she had decided not to carry a pregnancy to term and they might not have told her husband about that. Like women didn't have any social status. They couldn't, And these things remain very private. Women still don't want to talk about, we, you know, our, our reproductive lives are private and I, and I believe that's important, but it kept, people from defending midwives. Hmm. And so by, I think it was by 1910, virtually every state in the country had criminalized midwifery.
0: Wow. Yes. And so and then, then you had to be regulated.
1: Then birth that became, point. well, they, they criminalized, um, you know, they criminalized abortion and then they criminalized midwifery itself. And then birth became in the hands of men, um, And at first it was male physicians attending births in, in people's homes. And there still were immigrant midwives and granny midwives in the South and, um, midwives in poor communities that, that would still attend if people couldn't afford a doctor. But those mid women were dying out literally like they, you know, they were being aged out of the profession and not, not training new apprentices. And so. By um, by the time we entered World War II, most people were born with male physicians. And then the industrialization happened and the, the hospital systems were built. And by, I think by the end of 1950s, definitely into the early 1960s, over 99% of births in the United States happened in hospitals. Wow. So it's not that okay. long ago. Both of my parents, you know, I have long generations of my family. My My parents were 40 when I was born. I was born in 1969. So my parents were born in 1929. They were both born at home and it, it's not because they were hippies and it's not because they went out of their, their parents went out of the way to have a home birth. It's because everyone had a home birth. then.
0: Yeah. So, so when you say that we're trying to not trying to, but you think what might be happening um, in the mid midwifery community is that we're returning to reclaiming birth. How do you see that playing out? I do know just an anecdote. I seem to know more women than I used to who are opting for home birth and Mm to have a midwife fit there and is that is that a rising trend has it been a trend for a while and how is that regulated well
1: it's regulated differently state to state If if you want a state regulated midwife that varies from state to state because again we midwives were criminalized state by state they were um they were legalized and regulated state by state as well. Mm-hmm. So um, most people have a home birth, have a state regulated midwife. So she's licensed by the state and the states have different laws on that, but the, the laws definitely restrict women's choices. And freedom. they usually say midwives can only attend births within certain parameters, like um, things that seem reasonable, but the older I get, the less I'm into the state deciding What's good for us? Oh, I think that I think it should be up to the individual woman and what her informed risk assessment is. Um, Mm -hmm. So, in my state, uh, licensed midwives, um, you can a home birth is considered is considered safe, and the midwife is is uh, legally allowed to attend it if um, the woman is is between thirty seven and forty two weeks pregnant. So that's considered the window of being full term. If there's one head down baby so no preemies no post dates no twins or or triplets um, and no breech babies and then okay. the woman also has to have a baseline health of not be sick mm-hmm. and and if you ask me like i would say that those are reasonable but i also feel like it's not my place to say um, a woman having twins should be forbidden by the state from having a home birth or a woman having a breech baby should be forbidden by the state for having a home birth the state would say they're not forbid- forbidding the woman from doing that. They're forbidding the woman from having a licensed attendant with her while she does that.
0: So, okay. It's
1: like you can do it, but you uh, can't have, you can't have anybody there who can help you out.
0: Who can actually help. Yeah. <laughs> okay.
1: So um, that's regulated midwifery. And then, then there's free birth where women are just taking it back and giving birth at home with their friends and or on their own. And that's super exciting to me.
0: Free birth. And you used another phrase last time I spoke with you, you said wild pregnancy,
1: wild pregnancy, right? So <laughs> What's right. that? wild pregnancy is when a woman decides not to medicalize her pregnancy at all. Um, many of these are women who never even take a pregnancy test that they, they know their fertility cycle. They're, they're conscious about, um, they know they're attempting to conceive their period doesn't come. So they know they're pregnant and, and they just live their lives pregnant, right? They, they don't view it as a medical event. They, they eat well, they take good care of themselves, they exercise, and they know if they feel good, they're good, you know, mm-hmm. and they know just like anything else, they, they go to the hospital. If, um, if, or I don't know if they would even go to the hospital, but seek outside assistance, if they don't, don't feel like they're well, Mm-hmm. which ideally is how we, we live our lives, right? That um, yeah. we only interface with the medical system when we're, when we're sick or when we need to. Yeah. So these women are really having demedicalized experiences, just birth, pregnancy and birth are life events, not medical events. Well,
0: That's okay, exciting. I've got, I've got two different topics. I, I don't know how much longer I have you. So um, let's see which one I'm going to do. Okay. Let's do this one. So one of the things you talked about briefly, you touched on on this panel we were on about leaving the left was the past two years with all the COVID restrictions. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that as someone who's been, who was on the left for so long, how you saw, um, some of these restrictions and I'll, and I'll, before you answer, I just wanted to tell you in my little town in Texas, the people who were holding the the protests, weekly protests against the mask mandates, uh, were leftists for the most part. It was a wow. lot of hippie, um, natural grocer going, crystal wearing lefties. And so what the media did, I think, is they tried to they tried to turn the people, our response to COVID restrictions into a left right thing mm-hmm. and have it funnel it funnel it through that sort of left right False dichotomy that they're always putting us in, so that we fight constantly. But at the beginning and throughout, I saw these very anti-authoritarian lefties who opposed it and did not fall in line with that tribalism. So that was my experience. What was what was yours at watching this unfold?
1: Well, it's heartening for me to hear that because that wasn't my observation here. So I'm, I'm glad mm-hmm. to know that um, what I observed here wasn't wasn't what was happening everywhere it seemed to me like here it was very politically polarized and mm-hmm. if you were a good npr listening liberal you supported these draconian lockdowns and supported the masking um almost exactly paired venn diagrams of people who had the the signs in their yard of you know in this family we believe science oh. is real and yeah uh with a total allegiance to the masking and the lockdown and the these draconian policies I live in New Mexico we we were very um, our covid response was was very draconian um we we were locked down you know our schools were closed for a very long time we had mandatory masking even outdoors even
0: our governor said yes even outdoors right someone just, yelled at me in Santa Fe I told you this yeah. for not wearing one outside right. Right, I had someone yeah. throw a water bottle at me
1: in the woods when I was walking in the woods without without with my face out. Right, um, many people swear at me and scream at me when I was just walking outside in the woods with with my face out. I, you know, it was very hard. It, it's it's it. I still am reeling from from what we lived through here with the the government overreach and the the extreme response and watching people go along with the madness. Get th- this is how bad it was. The municipal pools, the the public pools here had signs up requiring that you wear a mask while
0: showering. Wow, that's just so, I mean, yeah, it's it's to the point where it it's absurd. Mm-hmm. but and the most disturbing part might be the part you mentioned where people where you see your fellow man go along with it so willingly. Right, right. Something that doesn't really make sense. It and that we had,
1: you know, I come from healthcare. Like I've I've been trained to take care of patients on on airborne precautions and on contact precautions. Like I I have been fit tested for N95 masks and understand what, you know, the the protocols of taking care of like a TB positive patient. Um and I know that the entire body of published literature before 2020 showed that that cloth and surgical masks do not prevent airborne viral transmission and there was no new research We just something was like oh we're going to do cloth masks and surgical masks um and everyone just went along with it in, and anyone who pointed out the the existing evidence that these things aren't going to make a difference was demonized um, mm-hmm. we were told that we'd um potentially, you know, we were risking losing our licenses. If we, if we spoke about these things, it was medical misinformation. It was dangerous. And when I would ask for evidence that, that cloth masks could prevent viral transmission, there really was none, like there was none. And I would look Mm -hmm. at the CDC page and they, um, had like a retrospective case studies on two beauty shops in different towns where one group wore masks and the other didn't. And they said there was less COVID in the beauty shop that wore the masks. I was like, this is not a study. Like this is a yeah. retrospective case analysis. This is not a study. Um, there was another study on hamsters. They, did, they actually, they got a study this was how far they were reaching <laughs> and I just, um, you know, I felt like I was going insane. I just all I just wanted this is a major intervention.
0: I, I did the same. I was looking like you i I want evidence. I don't mm-hmm. trust I don't trust men over women or women over men. I don't trust doctors anymore after the past two years. and I, right, I trust right. the evidence. and I was looking for studies, and every study I found was saying inconclusive or no, it doesn't do anything. No benefit. and no benefit. And then I also found these interesting studies uh, on psychology and mask wearing. Mm. I'm sure you saw some of these that said that um, wearing masks lowers people's inhibitions and they're more likely to engage in behavior they wouldn't otherwise, almost like when they're behind a keyboard, how people can be much more vicious with each other. And um, so that was concerning to me, of course, that, that, okay, we're heading into who knows how long of a period wearing these things that help us to dehumanize each other. So uh,
1: so dehumanizing, so demoralizing. and I don't many people said they didn't mind wearing it, but many of us were miserable wearing it, every mm-hmm. moment of having it on our faces. and we were treated like we were, you know, like petulant children that didn't want to sit still in church or something. I would actually say the left has more more empathy for the kid that doesn't want to sit still than than people who really were being, um, just psychologically harmed by being forced to wear this useless piece of, piece of cloth over their face all the time, and then I'd go sort of far to say is for many of us it was a psychological injury to witness yes. the, the masking of children and witness the mass yes. the mass masking.
0: Yes, absolutely. It 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 bothered like my soul. I don't know how else mm-hmm. to put that. To see little kids outside. I remember going to a a outdoor concert down in Austin. Austin was much more um, strict about draconian is the word you used about the mass than where I lived. And I remember going to an outdoor concert. Everyone is socially distanced from each other. Six feet, all the groups with their picnic tables are six feet away from each other, from the other families. And the musicians are far away. And there was this toddler like three or four years old outside. I, I just couldn't believe it that his, anyway, we've all had moments like that where we looked at it and we're like, why I, I'm living through a really crazy time period. Like how did I get right. in this time period? <laughs> like with this kind of craziness going on. Um, there's something else you said. I noticed that feeling of now. I was lucky. I lived in a place where I didn't have to wear it. Most places didn't enforce it. And so it was maybe a handful of times that I would put it on. Um, And one of those times was I would usually uh, wear it when getting on a flight until, you know, and then I would just eat and drink snacks (laughs) in the whole time. But um, I did have, there was one flight I was on where they were really strict and they were not having it and they kept coming back over and telling me to put it back on. And uh, I think I experienced on that flight what most people had already experienced a year prior because I hadn't been wearing it. So I hadn't gone through that psychology and I had like a mini, almost a panic attack where I thought I couldn't breathe. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then on top of that, like the physiological response of feeling like my breathing was restricted. I also, what you said was happening up here psychologically. It feels like someone's putting their boot on you Mm -hmm. and you're letting them. And it's that sort of chipping away of your morale and your, your self-confidence, you know, Um, that was happening to people on a large scale, Mm -hmm. people wearing it. And I think, you know, destroying their, who they are, um, by going, by complying with this, you know, tyranny, I don't know, it just really psychologically damaging to people. I think
1: it was horrible. It was horrible. I get, um, I get a, a lot of feelings, but I get a panicky sensation when I think about it coming back. When mm-hmm. I think about a mask mandate coming back, I, I I feel, I just feel desperate and panicked inside. Like, I just don't, I don't know if I can survive another, another mandatory mask period. It was, it was so awful. And, and then being told that you're, you're, you know, i been called a baby, been called a, um, you know, like you're, you're childish, like you're making a big deal out of nothing where it did not feel like nothing. It felt mm-hmm. really horrific to me. It's everything. And,
0: yeah. I'll say one more yeah. thing. I know I'm talking a lot during your interview, no, it's good. but my, um, my pastor gave a really great sermon about it and about, well, it was called the failure of the church during the pandemic. And one of the things he said was that, um, uh, as a Christian, if you're a Christian, that Christians believe, I didn't know this. I'm pretty new Christian, but he was saying, you're the image, you're creating the image of God, you are image bearers of God. And this is, this is spiritually like asking you to cover up your face is like right. the image. And so you all, so that you all look alike, like these sort of <laughs> faceless non entities. And there was just something really profound in that. I thought of like covering up the image bearers of God. And, and anyway, I, yeah, I don't, I don't, want us to go back to it. And I hope we don't, but if we do, I'm glad I live where I live. Mm-hmm. And I hope, I hope you get out. <laughs> yeah, so. I do. I
1: have an escape plan. If, if, okay, good. Um, if it comes back here, I just, I, I won't be able to stay. I won't be able to stay. So it is, I mean, it is yeah. so fascinating how politically polarized it was. And I'm glad to hear that in Texas, there, there were, natural health people and people who come from the left Um, because the whole time I was like, well, wait, where are the question authority people? How did the question authority people turn into the trust the science? You know, Um, how did that happen? Um, Where are the, the people who are skeptical of big pharma? Where are the, the people who are skeptical of, of globalization? Like, well, how did this happen? And I still don't know exactly how it happened, but it did happen. Like here, the, the natural health community almost to a T, like just got in line with it. The, the acupuncturists stopped seeing people, the, um, the massage therapists were enforcing masking and making people wear masks while they're getting massages, um, not giving massages for a long time. The midwives, most of the midwives fell for it. There's a birth center in town that is still making women wear masks in labor and in postpartum when they meet their babies. Wow. which is not the law. It's not the state law. They, they're choosing to do that to women. And wow. and they're still to this day doing it. They're still doing it. Um, and the women are complying like you, this is a place you, you choose to go. It's not like the public hospital. Um, so how,
0: it's still happening. How big of, of an impact do you think the past two years have had on, um, busting through this left, right false dichotomy or what I call a false dichotomy?
1: I, I think it's had a lot of an impact. I, I think that the, what gets called the heterodox community or the, um, the synthesis position, like all over, I'm seeing different groups of people explain what's happening in different ways. And, and what they're explaining is people are breaking out of this polarization, that they're breaking out of this idea that you have to be on this side or that side of the political spectrum. I, I don't know if I'm hopeful. I, I tend to practice what I call defensive pessimism. So, like, you know, <laughs> helps me
0: that helps me <laughs> like, just, oh I, I do know. cautious optimism so it's right, good, that's good.
1: <laughs> it is good right
0: defensive so, pessimism okay
1: right and then I'm often like su- I'm happily surprised it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be you know, um but I do see I'm happier you know I feel I feel like I have a lot of people who do see the world in in less black and white ways around me right now I I'm finding more and more people. I, I think the world of free thinkers is growing. I think that the space for conversation is growing. Um, if you're still on the left, it probably feels like it's shrinking, though, right? Like if you still haven't jumped ship and you're still trying to function there, like there's less and less diversity of viewpoint on on. NPR there's less and less diversity of viewpoint in the New York Times like all the the, the liberal institutions are locking down further mm-hmm. but outside of those it seems like space is growing
0: yeah I think so too
1: how much more time do you have Mary do I
0: have to let you go oh no I can go for a while I can go for oh, okay. at least, like an, at least another 25 minutes oh great okay because I wanted to ask you about something you were talking about at dinner the other night if you If you don't mind talking about it, you, I'm someone who um, I decided late in life that I might like to have a child, but I'm past the age at which people usually have kids. Not that they can't. I do hear from people all the time who say, my mom got pregnant at your age. It's, you know, Um, but uh, I've also, we're also considering adoption and, you know, we have our, my mind is open basically, and this is all new for me. And you started talking about what I'm going to call Big Fertile, which mm. I had no idea about some of the things you were saying. Um, right. How, how? I don't even know how to broach this subject because um, <laughs> it was so alarming to me, some of the stuff you're talking about. What about the explosion of surrogacy? Can we start there? Is that is that something that it seems like it's just really taken off in the Absolutely. past few years? And they're
1: really selling it, and it's another one of those things like, "Oh, if you critique it, you're being mean. You're a bad person. You know, you can't, we can't speak poorly of surrogacy because you hurt people's feelings." But um, you know, I believe surrogacy is child trafficking. I believe Mm that um, that the process of creating a child through pregnancy is sacred and is motherhood. I believe that is the foundational. Uh, foundational space of motherhood, I think that sometimes adoption is necessary because a horrible tragedy has happened. But I think that, you know, adoption means something went terribly wrong. It, it, it's not a beautiful thing. It's, it's, I, I, that doesn't mean it has to end up in like a bad life for, for anybody, but adoption means something went terribly wrong and the primal mother child bond was broken. and, and, now we have to do the next best thing, and and that can mm-hmm. be okay. Grief never killed anybody. Adversity is something that can create strong characters, but um, it's not it's not something to celebrate that a child needs to be adopted. It means mm-hmm. something went terribly wrong because this foundational, primal, in my opinion, most important bond of our species, the mother-child bond, has been broken. The mother and child start off as one, and then birth turns you into still one but like a bubble of one where the the mother in in um i don't know what language it comes from but there's a, a word that is mama toto which means mother baby and that's Oh, like, that's swahili. I, yeah, I speak swahili. swahili. Yeah. Oh, mama toto. Right. <laughs> yeah. So for the first um through nursing the mother baby is is a mama toto it's one word for that that unit you're still a unit and then there's a weaning process but so surrogacy is so just disrespectful to the mother child bond. It's so disrespectful to, to this, this primary part of our humanity, which is that um, we're created by women that, that we, we women create humanity and that, that we are, we all come from the body of a woman. We all were merged with a woman before, before the separation of us into an individual occurred. And, it's using women as though we're just incubators that we're just, we're just a machine that you can plant a seed in and, you know, and then nine months later, harvest a baby out of. And we all know there are many, many studies on, on attachment issues in adoptees adult adoptees are, are much more likely to have, um, have a lot of psychological problems, have addiction issues. The suicide rate is much higher because of the attachment issues, because uh, attachment is so important to our development as an organism. I think we're going to see those same issues in the, in the surrogacy babies because maybe even worse, because no one's even acknowledging the motherhood of the person
0: who, the woman who grew the baby. Can you, so this is, uh, I haven't really thought about this a lot until recently. I, I, I saw a conversation on Twitter a few months ago, between two different friends who I respect who have, have um, and they had completely different takes on it. And I, had, it's one of those things that you just don't think about, right? Like you just are sort of like, well, this happens. Mm-hmm. And so I started thinking about it and my libertarian friend was saying, well, what is it? Uh, what is it? What is it the state's business or what is it your business? If, if two people have an arrangement um and, you know, one person is willing to pay the other person to carry a baby and give to them. Why does it bother you? And then my other friend was saying, yeah, but you're forgetting there's a third person in this equation. That's the child exactly. who didn't ask to be sold. Is is that, that's kind of your take on it?
1: What business is it to you if I sell my five-year-old?
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: Why should the state be involved in that? Where right. I think, you know, humans shouldn't be for sale. I, I feel like human beings should not be for sale. Period. And surrogacy to, to buy a baby first, you have to rent a woman, right? So we've got two humans who are for sale in the surrogacy contract. What I usually ask people who are really pro-surrogacy is um, and, and I don't know what their answer to this will be. I've been surprised sometimes, but should a woman um be allowed to buy sperm from a sperm bank so that the man has relinquished any parental rights, there's no issue of paternity rights, inseminate herself, then sell the baby on Craigslist. Why or why not?
0: That's a great question. That would stump many, I think. Yeah, I think right. a lot of that. A lot of the people who support who support it would probably say, "Well, yeah, she should because he's she should be able to do that because he's already relinquished rights." I think that's so. What
1: surrogacy. Would say. Well, so she should be allowed. So we should be allowed to sell our children, is what they're saying. That we should be allowed to sell our children.
0: Yeah. This comes and down I to when and I think we shouldn't be allowed to sell our children, right? This comes down to does this does this relate to you at all? Because it seems to me it might relate to the when uh, when someone uh, believes uh, life begins to that to that question.
1: Does yes, it relate to I,
0: abortion at all to you at all or no?
1: I do. I think it does. I think that this idea that um, you know I unquestionably believe that human life the human organism begins at fertilization that human life begins at fertilization my issue with abortion is you can't force women to to incubate babies they don't want you can't force women to stay pregnant and give birth and when the state says says women can be forced to give birth and, and be pregnant and give birth, I, I feel like that's not good. That's not good. It's it's very, again, disrespectful to the mother-baby unit. It's disrespectful to women, and it creates a lot of problems. But I think that both surrogacy and, um, and the abortion argument, as we hear it, especially among right-wing Christians and Catholics, comes from this fallacy that that men and women contribute equally to the creation of a human being. And that's just not true. It's not true. Ejaculation is not the same contribution to making a baby as making the baby. Hmm. It's not, it's not. And it's, it's, it's not fair. Nature is not fair. Nature puts the reproductive responsibility on females. Ejaculation is not the same contributing contribution to to humanity to the creation of a human being as what women do obviously obviously so it's not fair and I'm not saying men shouldn't have parental rights and all of that but I think this idea that pregnancy and birth are nothing just something you can buy just something you can force women to do because it's the baby's made when you have sex is what we're talking about like that's the root of both issues
0: hmm it's so um, it's so interesting to me because my ideas, my opinions are in flux on on a lot of these issues right now, and I don't I'm not embarrassed saying that. I think more people should say that if they don't know what they think yet and they're still hearing arguments from people and and thinking it over. Um, in my old life as a social justice person, all of my opinions were received <laughs> and then they were mine and i didn't actually do a lot of thinking back then you kind of turn your brain off and you're just like this is what my cold is doing you know now we're supporting mass now we're you know right, right, um, right. pro-choice now we're whatever so um i'm still thinking about all of this stuff and i appreciate you talking with me about it there there was one other thing you were talking about that night which was the uh, process of um uh, harvesting eggs and in vitro fertilization, and how that has changed just the technology of it, and some of the possible consequences for children who are conceived that way. Would you mind talking about that? This might get our video banned from YouTube, but that's okay. It'll be on Rumble. Right. <laughs>
1: So there are some great resources if people are interested in really digging into this and Jennifer Lahl's group, um, Jennifer L-A-H-L. She, she has done amazing work on big fertility. I'd recommend people really look at her documentaries, listen to her web, um, website, listen to her podcast. And then Jennifer Block wrote a great book called everything below the waste that really goes into big fertility. So. um I think, you know, the, the main thing I want to say, if we're having a short conversation about it is this is all human experimentation and we are creating people that are likely to have problems because of what we've done to them. Like our, you know, the desire to have a child is overriding what's, what might be best for the child that, that ends up being created out of that. Um, so we don't really know what the long-term ramifications of, of these reproductive technologies are going to be on children, but, but we know some of them. We know that children born through IVF are exponentially more likely to have cancer later in life. We know they're exponentially more likely to have very complicated pregnancies and be born prematurely and end up in the neonatal intensive care unit. Um, people who demonize home birth, like women who who birth at home and say, oh, they're, they're just in it for their own experience. Um, then support big fertility and support IVF where those kids are so much more likely to have very complicated pregnancies and complicated births than, than children conceived naturally. Um, it's interesting, like in our society, we're always allowed to choose more technology. We're always allowed to choose more medical intervention, but we're demonized if we want less. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a lot of factors going into it, but again, it's the, my baseline is this is human experimentation and, things that we do know. So in Jennifer Block's book, she talks, she really outlines what happens with in vitro and, and it blew my mind reading it. Like I've always been skeptical of big fertility. Um, people say, well, you know, I thought you supported women's choices. I'm like, I, I support women's choices, but women can't choose to do this to themselves. This is mad scientist stuff. Like these are mm-hmm. these, I, I don't support doctors, right. To experiment on humans. And, mm-hmm. and we can't have big fertility without that.
0: And what do you Um, mean by experimenting on humans? Like what is the process that it's changed, right?
1: They used to, um, it's changed somewhat. I mean, they, they always have to do unnatural things to a woman's body to get her to produce, um, eggs in a way that they can be harvested from, from her body. The human egg is not supposed to exist outside the human body. It, It is not, we are not designed for that gamete to ever exist, um, alive outside the human body. It, it starts in the ovary. It goes to the fallopian tube. It ends up in the uterus. If, if it is not fertilized, it's discarded. Um, but sperm exists outside the human body, right? That's, that's how they're designed. So to get a human egg outside of the body, we have to hyperstimulate a woman's ovaries, make her make a whole bunch of eggs. And then doctors then surgically, sorry, my office is a little loud right now. They surgically extract those eggs. So they go in through a um, laparoscopic procedure and pluck the eggs out. So they give the woman drugs to make her make more eggs, make too many eggs, make more eggs than she naturally would. Those drugs are implicated in a much higher rate of ovarian cancer later, which makes sense. You're like messing with the ovaries, making them make too many cells. Cancer is too many cells. Um, So they go get all these eggs. They bring them out. They examine them. They look at the ones that look best. They choose a couple eggs. They're going to, they're going to fertilize. And then what they used to do is put those eggs in a Petri dish and surround them with sperm, and let the sperm and the egg do their thing outside the body, and a fertilization would occur. And put now, on some
0: very white music. Yeah,
1: I was just thinking very white. You know, <laughs> so it like an archetype for that. Do their um, thing. Yeah, do their thing. So that has been deemed too messy, and the doctors want more control over it. So now they select a sperm. They cut the tail off the sperm and put the sperm's head in a micropipette, and they shove it in the egg. So the egg, the egg has a natural intelligence. Like she, we have this like idea that the sperm just like are in this rush to the egg and who gets there first, gets to make the, you know, gets to, to be the winner. Right. (laughs) But really the sperm cooperate, like some of them create channels for other sperm to swim in the middle. Um, And then the ones that do get around the egg, the egg decides who comes in. Like she, she has a very fast electrochemical charge. Right in the area where there's one sperm and we'll let that sperm in. And I don't know what the courting process is before that, but she will pick one and let, let him <laughs> in. And then, then that's fertilization and then the human organism begins. So all that natural wisdom is taken out of the process of in vitro fertilization. And it's all on the doctors doing this. They're the ones deciding which eggs, which sperm. So they pick one sperm and they shove it in the egg, except she won't allow that. She'll explode. If you just rape her like that, like if you just shove a pipette into the egg, the the egg will actually die. It'll explode. So somehow these scientists have figured out that, if you give the egg an acid bath and wash this layer off the edge of the, the off the outside of the egg, it's called the zona pellucida, the shining layer. And it's a layer of the egg that actually emits light. The zona wow. pellucida, right? If you wash the light emitting layer off the egg, then you can shove a, a micro pep head in it and get a sperm in there. So these people being created through this are not being created the way we're designed to be created, the way our natural intelligence has always done human creation. So then they grow, the fertilization happens. You get it, you know, one cell divides into two, two cells divide into four, four divide into 16. Um, And at that level, it's uh, around 16 cells. Again, somehow the scientists have figured out they can pluck one cell off, the zygote and test it to look for down syndrome and other chromosomal anomalies to decide whether or not they're going to implant this embryo into a woman. And so these children born through in vitro also have had one 16th of their material taken away. They've had one 16th of their self removed and the doctors say, it's all okay. It's all fine. They're all fine. They turn, they're just, just normal. Like we don't see any, we don't see any problems. But I would argue we have no idea what it does to a human. We have no idea what we're doing in the creation of these people. Like, this is mad scientist stuff.
0: Hmm. I, I, I'm going to throw you a curveball here. The other night, I was doing a show with my friend Chris, who we do uh, a pop culture entertainment show. And he uh, turned me on to, oh, I think I recommended it to you this Michael Crichton essay about the politicization of science that was in his book, State of Fear. And and then one of the things we were talking about was because the movie Jurassic Park is coming back out and stuff. And I did not realize this, but earlier this year, there were several articles published about how scientists have now fully mapped out and and they have the sequence of uh, all of the DNA for the dodo bird. And so they're talking about bringing back the dodo uh what do you think about something like that and it's kind of a curveball but since we're talking about experimentation and mad scientists and how does that strike you
1: well i just think of all the problems we have is that our most pressing problem that we yeah. want to pour, pour our resources
0: into <laughs> good answer yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i don't know it's a on a gut level I kind of i'm like mm, i doesn't feel right. Like, uh, but I can't really articulate why I haven't figured out entirely why, why I say, no, we should not do that. <laughs> but yeah. I think, I think some of it is just, um, I don't know, this question of, of, of taking things to a place where we haven't really fully, or and maybe you're not able to comprehend the consequences, any possible negative consequences. I don't know. So I know. what do you suggest for I'm going to just ask you. I know you're too busy and you can't take on new patients. <laughs> you can you can tap out and say, I'm not answering this, Carrie. What do you suggest for someone who is, um, um, like myself, maybe deciding at a later age that they would like to conceive? Are there any books? Is there any natural kind of like the fertility method, that knowing mm. about the, the patterns and stuff? What do you suggest for someone? How old are you, Carrie? I'm 43.
1: Okay. Um, so I would recommend, you know, get started right away. I think also like really this, this, this is less personal to your situation, but I would say really start educating young women that this is a long con on women to tell us we can just wait to have babies. And Mm -hmm. like, we need to really start explaining to women that, um, we should have our kids when we're fertile and that this is, this is a long con people are making so much money off us waiting, you know, um, mm-hmm. big fertility loves it when women wait until their late thirties to, to think they're ready. So there's that piece um, for you. I'd say um, acupuncture. I've seen miracles oh. with acupuncture with fertility, make sure you're eating lots of good fats, like really stay off synthetic food and, and, um, eat an ancestral diet. I'm I'm a fan of um, like the nourishing tradition style of eating. So lots of uh, local organic animal products, lots of bone broth, lots of good fats, things your your grandmother's ate. Right?
0: That's what, what, you, what you want. To what about Red Bull? No, oh, just
1: <laughs> probably not that. Probably not that. <laughs> okay, it's depleting to the adrenals, which are mm-hmm. are part of your your endocrine system. Um, you want to nurture that the hell out of yourself, eat everything you put in your body should be about trying to invite a spirit into wanting to live in your body. Um, you know, like think about that and you probably don't want to attract a spirit who's really attracted to Red Bull. That's going to yeah. be a tough, kid. That's <laughs>
0: a tough kid to raise. <laughs> Look, I know, I know, I know some of this in my core without knowing this, but I'm glad I asked you cause I need to hear it from someone. So yeah, yeah
1: just get and healthier. It, yeah get healthier um read taking charge of your fertility that's a really good book to to start with find an acupuncturist clean up your diet and then i recommend people so you know i'm kind of like i don't really know anything like the older i get i'm like i don't know what what i thought i knew yeah. last week turned out not to be true so take everything i say with a grain of salt you know yeah but i but i am somebody who's, you know, I'm like a baby crone now, I guess I'm a grandma, I'm getting gray hair. Like I, I know a little bit about some things. And what I know is children don't like, like it when their parents, um, uh, they don't like their parents to have an illusion of control, right? Kids like kids are little agents of chaos. They like to really shake things up. So kids don't like, um, they, they like to come and really shake things up. So I would say like, do some really like sexy role-playing. Like you're a, you're a 26 year old grad student and you can't get pregnant right now. Like it's not okay. Like right now, it's not a good time. Baby spirits love that. They love that. <laughs> Please no, no <laughs> pregnancy. <Right. laughs> Baby Thank spirits.
0: you so much. That was a funny, unexpected end of an interview. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mary Lou. I So I asked you before we started, because I have your bio. It's down below. Anybody who wants to learn more about, um, about Mary Lou, you can find out below. But there is no link to go to find out more because she's too busy in her practice right now. So we don't have one below. But um, I hope that we're going to be able to announce some more dates for um, this woman leaving the left discussions and stuff that that um, that Megan and Isabella put together and I that would be that would be amazing to get to see you again so
1: I, I would love that I would love that I'd love to just hang out too if you're ever in Albuquerque please you're welcome to stay at my home and I just thank I, you I just so enjoyed meeting you and really hope yeah. to to continue on yeah
0: yeah well I'm gonna let you get back to work and right. uh, I appreciate you taking the time with us today and uh have a nice rest of your week thank you guys for tuning in
1: Bye. Thanks, Carrie.
0: Bye. Bye.